Please join me in our responsive welcome. No matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. Stories of faith that connect us. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut or Colorado, the United States or Europe or anywhere in the world. Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. And a wonderful beginning to this week's question. We're in week two of a four-week sermon series on questioning and questions. And this week's question came from Jean Jackson. And the question was, does prayer work? And someone wisely said at Council this week, well, it's a yes or no question, so this should be quick. (laughs) But I think the, the question that is a fair follow-up is on what basis are we going to evaluate whether it works or not? How do we determine that? We have all experienced loved ones who didn't recover from an illness or a procedure. We've all experienced the loss of life that seemed premature way too soon. And even on the other end, what we've experienced is keeping vigil at the bedside of someone who was actively dying at the ripe age of 97. And we pray for this passing. We have seen that it can take days and days and days and days. We throw around language like it's God's will or it's God's plan. The easiest example is a sporting event. You know, if you have both sides rooting for opposing teams, which prayer does God answer? I mean, does it matter who has more fans? If you have fans under the age of two, do you get bonus points? If the prayers, if the players are praying, does that multiply it by three? It's like, it's like a horse race, you know, or a head by a stride, and then, oh, someone else started praying, so then the other horse catches up. It's like, are we still talking about prayer? How do we measure the outcome? Is it about getting what you want? You know, we teach children now in pretty plain English, you can't always get what you want when you want it, how you want it. Or as the song goes, you can't always get what you want, but if you try real hard, you just might find you get what you need. So maybe the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. Gene recounted a story of his grandmother, who lived to the age of 106. Just let that sink in for a second. And at the age of 100, as is often the case, uh, she was interviewed by a newspaper. This happens. You know, people, the centenarians, or I think that's the right word, people want to say, you know, what's the secret to long life? And so she was asked this question. And her answer was, if you make it, you do. If you don't, you don't. (laughs) I wonder what she would have said to the question, does prayer work? I wish they had asked her that question because she was a very religious woman. And I wonder if at that age she might have answered it 
a little differently than sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's an important question, and we're going to go further into it, but first we're going to let the Gospel of Luke um, speak to us a little bit about the presence of prayer in that particular Gospel. Remember, Luke was a physician. He took copious notes. He says a lot. So you're going to hear rapid-fire snippets of Scripture that include the word prayer. Readers, come on forward, please. While Zacharias was performing his priestly functions, the congregation outside was praying, when an angel appeared and said, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, your prayers have been heard. Anna, the prophetess, spent her whole life in the temple and worshipped God night and day with fasting and prayers. When all the people had been baptized... And Jesus was praying after his own baptism. Heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit came down upon him in the the bodily form of a dove. Enormous crowds collected to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases, but Jesus slipped away quietly to deserted places for prayer. Then people said to Jesus, Why is it that John's disciples are always fasting and praying, just like the Pharisees' disciples? But your disciples both eat and drink. Jesus went up to the hillside to pray and spent the whole night in prayer to God. But I say to all who will listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who treat you badly. While Jesus was praying by himself, having only the disciples near him, he asked them a question. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went off to the hillside to pray. And then, while he was praying, the whole appearance of his face changed and his clothes became white and dazzling. There is a great harvest, Jesus told them, but only a few are working in it, which means you must pray that God will send out more workers. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And after he had finished, one of the disciples said, Teach us how to pray, as John used to teach his disciples. When you pray, returned Jesus, you should say, Our Father, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. Then Jesus gave them an illustration to show that they must always pray and never lose heart. It is written, Jesus told them, My house is a house of prayer. You must be vigilant at all times, praying that you may have strength. Jesus said, Simon, I have prayed for you that you may not lose your faith. Jesus went out of the city and up to the Mount of Olives. And when he reached his usual place, he said to the disciples, Pray that you may not have to face temptation. Then Jesus went off by himself, about a stone's throw away, falling on his knees, prayed. Jesus was in agony and prayed even more intensely. Then he got to his feet from his prayer and walking back to his disciples, he found them sleeping. Jesus said to the disciples, You must get up and go on praying that you may not have to face temptation. Thank you. There's a lot of praying going on. I hear a mix of instruction and practice for others in conversation with other people there, all alone. I think what's important about prayer is to note that it's relational. 
You know, that word is going to keep coming up in this question series because faith is relational. And so every aspect of it is going to include an element of relationship. Richard Rohr, in praying always, says, Prayer is not a transaction that somehow pleases God, but rather a transformation of the consciousness of the one doing the prayer. Prayer is the awakening of an inner dialogue. He also said, prayer is sitting in silence until it silences us, choosing gratitude until we are grateful, and praising God until we ourselves are in act of praise. Now, Richard Rohr is a contemplative. He's very comfortable with silence. I know this startles and scares some of you. But don't worry. There's more. Anne Lamott says, churches are good places for prayers, but so are garages and cars and mountains and showers and dance floors. Because prayer doesn't just keep us in that place of silence. Prayer moves us out into the world. And our prayer overflows into all the activities that we do. So does the absence of prayer. One of my professors used to say, you can tell if someone's praying or not by their startle reflex. People who are easily startled aren't praying well. Well, don't, up, don't come up behind me. Because <laughs> you might be disappointed and think that I don't have a prayer life. I don't really think that that was uh, scientifically proven. But his point was that you can recognize the prayer life of a person by their responsiveness to life's unexpected things. I remember when I was just starting to explore prayer as an adult, and in 1991, some of you weren't even born yet, the feminine face of God came off the press And Margaret Mitchell says this about prayer. Sometime when it is all finally too much, I climb into my car, roll the windows up, and somewhere between backing out of the driveway and rounding the first corner, I let out a yell that would topple Manhattan. How do you pray? I think sometimes we can do a disservice around prayer if we limit it to a specific place, a specific way, and even a specific posture. In the snippets from the Gospel of Luke, we had Jesus on a mountain, going away to a private place, in conversation with people, and one note of a posture on his knees. And when we think about different prayer postures, if we're going to think about the ones that many of us were probably taught, it's your eyes cast downward, your hands folded or placed gently in your lap, you're sitting or you're standing. And it wasn't until I heard a yoga instructor say this that these postures made sense to me. Because usually when people say to me, put your eyes down, I look up. When they say, let's sit, I want to stand. And it's not just because I'm a contrary kind of person. It really is physically what my body is feeling at that moment. 
But the yoga instructor said, we don't use our bodies to get into these poses. We use these poses to get into our bodies. And then it clicked. These prayer postures, whatever that posture is for you, is something that helps us to get into our body and to get to that inner place where we can be with silence or where we can be in conversation, in relationship with God. Prayer is an embodied practice. We can't separate ourselves. I know that there are some biblical writers that try to really distinguish the spirit and the body. But while we're here, we're embodied spirits. So we have to deal with that. In fact, not just deal with it. Let's just embrace it. It's what we have. And I know I sit here with you as a woman who has a fully able body at the moment. It wasn't always fully able. I've had periods of serious injury. Who knows what's coming? So in those moments of where we are, wherever you are in your body now, this is what we have. And so staying with sort of the learnings from yoga, you maybe know the word prana, which is the Sanskrit word for life force or breath. And I can't find any justification for this other than in my own head. I love that prana is P-R-A and prayer is P-R-A. And I think that prayer helps us to get in touch with our life force and our breath. And for me, praying with the breath, as we do at the beginning of many of our services, is very meaningful. It sort of removes the question of how do I pray? Or it can simplify it. I remember being on a retreat where we were asked to focus on our breath for seven periods of sitting throughout each day, 45 minutes each sit. Yeah, you can say that's a lot. Um, And for the two or three breaths that you can follow in succession, it's really very interesting. But at one point in in that retreat, I started to say, notice that I'm not sure if I'm just letting my body breathe or if I'm trying to control this. And I have this beautiful image of this young family that I know who has five kids, and they are worthy of all of our prayers, under the age of eight years old. And I was in conversation with these children doing this meditation where I'm supposed to focus on my breath, so you see where my mind goes. But I say to the oldest child, how do you breathe? And she said, you just do it. You just let yourself do it. But there are things in life that sort of catch us short on our breath, aren't they? Where we sort of hold our breath a little bit. Like, what's going to happen? Or we hear a news report and we stiffen and our body gets constricted. And when our body is constricted, we can't breathe freely. Our body is meant to expand and contract with a breath. And for, if you're anything like the teachings of young women when I was a younger woman, it was like, don't let your belly go out. Your belly's supposed to go in. And so the yoga teacher, when she said, when you inhale, let your stomach go out, I'm like, oh, she didn't get the memo. 
But for all of us, I mean, I don't know the male equivalent of that, but for all of us, the inhale is a time of expansion. Stomach and all. And the exhale is a time of returning to whatever your normal body state is. The life force force and the breath is deeply connected to our prayer. And personally, you know, prayer changes. Some of the prayers that were very helpful to center and to feel this sense of connection to something beyond or even within. Like I remember being taught grace before meals. That still sort of goes through my head sometimes when I sit down. That exact prayer that was the exact same every night. Or now I lay me down to sleep. It's worth teaching our children these prayers. It's a starting point. And then we can teach them that a walk in nature can be prayer, or sitting quietly can be prayer, or Lectio Divina can be prayer of slow reading, savoring scripture, savoring sacred writings. Service trips and volunteer hours can be prayer in action. Prayer does not always require stillness. But upon further reflection of those moments, perhaps there's something that we can learn. I think one of the most effective tools for me for prayer, and in terms of actually using words, is an empty chair. So I'll use the pew. So if I were to imagine that Jesus was in that pew and I was sitting or standing and I came into the room, what would I say? Really, what would I say? Someone was trying to trick me once with a question and said, you know, after one of the religious leaders of another group had said something that did not uphold the dignity of all people. They said, what would you say to that leader? And I said, I I can't even imagine being in the presence of that leader. You know, getting close enough. And then if I did get close enough, I'm just going to spew out something? Reactionary to something I've read or heard? It was a grace-filled moment of authenticity, of like, What would you say? That's why I always think a great starting point is high. High. And are you going to run up and say, do this, do this, do this, do this? It doesn't work in a marriage. I'm pretty sure it's not going to work in this kind of relationship either. I mean, if you do have that kind of marriage, help me. Um, Help me with that. Another practice that I've used in prayer, especially with uh, situations that have deeply challenged me, where I've been hurt, um, where I am just feeling all sorts of the absence of love towards someone or something, something meaning a situation. And I bring that person or the people connected to that 
situation to Jesus. And I step back and I observe. Let me see how he handles this. Maybe I can learn something. And I do. It's remarkable. The openness. And it has an effect. It softens me somehow. You know, I go in with that constriction and even wanting to just pray for someone else is a softening of that. But then bringing that person to that place where you have said God is here. And then that's for me, where the written and spoken prayers come in, I go back to that chair. You know, if I'm going to lead us in a prayer or if we're going to write something down, it's not going to be instructive. <laughs> not going to take up my time talking to Jesus, telling Jesus what to do, right? Or trying to use prayer time to manipulate people into thinking something. But how do our words of prayer open us? How are we moved toward compassion? How are we moved toward seeing the other as someone who is deeply connected to us? Didn't Edison do that this morning? Didn't he? Did you see him put water on me? Yeah, that's the freedom, isn't it? The freedom. It's beautiful. And that's our unity because we all baptized him this morning. How do you pray? Where do you pray? When Beth and I moved to Guilford, we lived in a parsonage for a very brief period of time. And I, I typically like to have my silent time in the afternoon. And we lived across the street from this large building that was under construction. And honestly, they removed one brick at a time and threw it into the dumpster. And every time it hit the side, so it was like, one clunk, clunk, clunk. Not conducive to my silent prayer. But so instructive. So annoyingly instructive. Because you want to know what that represented? It represented the gift of prayer. Because remember, prayer is relational, right? And so not just constriction, but many of us build defenses over time, some quite necessary, some optional, some comfortable, some maybe even fashionable. But what that represented to me was the effect of prayer of taking down my defenses one brick at a time. And it didn't hurt like the sound that I was making and the, but, or like the country music song, the brick of my defenses scattered on the ground. That's what prayer has done in my life. It helps to remove the defenses. It takes away some of the cement. The bricks fall down. And now it's very true, at the end of a prayer time, I can just pick them back up again. 
and put them up. But if you've been on enough service trips, you know that moving a pile of rocks from here to here and then over to here, it just gets tiring after a while. So then you decide to see what it's like to live without the bricks, without the walls. It changes the way I think and speak. Changes the way I see and even hear. How has prayer changed you? If it makes you even more constricted, maybe we should talk. But how has it changed you? And then there are those beautiful moments where you have an experience of prayer that is undeniable. You feel like there's no barrier between you and everybody. You're like in love with everybody. It's like, it's like the magic mushroom, but without it. What a gift that is. Those are those moments where a whole wall falls down. Savor that. Those are truly Truly a gift. You know, throughout human history, there has always been violence and division. There's always been unrest. There has always been evidence that God's dream has not been fulfilled. Always. Even people not connected to church communities and faith communities are known to ask, where is God in this? And my mentor, Ken Lash, I've spoken of him before, he always said, you know, we need to make this movement from being a child of God to being an adult of God. And an adult of God perspective is that God doesn't decide life for us, but with us. And God has some questions for us. Like, will you help me? What are we going to do about this? I hear some people say, you know, you have a direct line of God or you're closer to God, to people who are serving as clergy. And I say, don't fool yourself. We all have that. Each one of us was created by the same God. So please don't ever elevate anyone else, especially not a preacher. You've got that line, and you've got that line, and you've got that line. And together, God is saying, will you help me? What can we do about this? And a church community is the best place that I know of pretending to these matters because we have instructions that we can go back to. We can learn the lessons of our ancestors in faith. Other faith communities are great places too, but we're sitting here. So we're going to do it in this one, through this one, together. And our guests are going to go back to theirs and do it there. But we're all connected. Didn't somebody say that this morning in this baptism tribe we have today? Yeah. It's the body of Christ. Because God's dream requires that the dignity of all people is honored. All people. 
end creation. That nonviolence is the only way to love. And that shared power and mutual interest in the greatest good is what we're after. There's been progress, but we're not there yet. So when we are invited into conversations about being an instrument of God's dream, I hope you'll be there. And bring your prayer, because we'll be listening. We have a very special blessing this morning from our prayer shawl group, which is an instrument of God's grace and God's healing, which is a wonderful example. Come on forward. Which is a wonderful example of the power of how prayer works and how it changes lives. And friends, when you go, wherever you go, go forth in the love of God. Go forth with hope and joy to be of service to the God that prays in us and with us. When you go, wherever you go, go with the assurance that God is before you to light your way, behind you to encourage you, above you to watch over you, beside you to befriend you, and within you to bring you peace. Go in that peace. Let us say together, 